read the passage of scripture we're going to look at out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Jesus speaking, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Now, the real question is, as you were seated, how many of you thumped down a little harder than when you stood up because of the weight of what we just read? How do you feel when you read a passage like that? Kind of heavy stuff, isn't it? It's not at all uncommon, I think, to respond in kind of one of two ways. Um, you know, we're all a little bit different and kind of have our own uniquenesses, but, you know, there's, there's probably a spectrum of, of responses, and the two ends might be defined on the one hand by saying, wow, I just, I sort of feel guilty um, when I hear kind of like heavy things like that from the Bible. I mean, every single rule matters, and you got to follow it all, or you're not going to heaven. Really? Is that what Jesus just said? <laughs> and I feel so guilty. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try harder. I got to get after this, because I know I'm not doing it, and so we kind of get going on the religious thing harder and harder in response. That's one way to respond. Uh, Another way to respond is to also feel guilt, but say instead, you know what, I'm checking out. Um, You know, the Psalms are really nice. Can we just go read some Psalms? (laughs) I mean, there's there's a lot of other parts of the Bible that, that aren't quite that heavy, that are an awful lot more encouraging. Maybe can we just, can we just dwell there and kind of like quickly read over this stuff and move on? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we sort of chuckle when we say that, but it's really true. There's a lot of people, including many of us in this room, who at least at one time in our lives maybe had a lot of experience with uh, church, um, sometimes as children or occasionally even as adults, and we felt like there was so much of that kind of thing that we just read you got to be perfect or you're not going to heaven, that we just felt like guilted all the time. And we're like, you know what? I'm out. I, I don't need that. Um, I'm not interested in that. And that drives a lot of people right out of the pews of churches on Sunday mornings. Now, it's amazing, though, to think that Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5 that not one tiny bit of the law of God's rules will ever be relaxed. And then in Matthew chapter 11, just six chapters later, in the same book, the same guy, Jesus, says that if we come to him burdened and exhausted under the weight of our failure to measure up, he will give us rest. So clearly there's something more uh, going on here. Last week, we launched this series of sermons in the Sermon on the Mount, probably the the best known and most prominent sermon ever recorded or preached by Jesus himself, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We'll be in these, um, walking through the Sermon on the Mount all summer long. And we launched it by saying there's, what's happening here is that there's a collision of worlds. Uh, the, The kingdom of God has invaded the kingdom of man. The value system of God is now confronting the value system of man. And when Jesus comes into the world, he's saying, God's world is invading your world. And that collision is messy because those two value systems don't mix. They're very, very different. Today, what we're going to see is that Jesus is the key. He himself is the key to navigating that collision of worlds. This is one of the essential truths that are being taught in the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here last Sunday, you remember we said these first three sermons are going to be like the big picture, and then everything else is going to be Jesus applying these truths to lots of very practical and specific life situations. So we never want to lose sight of what these three truths are. Even when we move well into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about things like, you know, how we think about money and how we think about, um, you know, opponents and people who are maybe rivals and we don't get along with and how we're thinking about things like lust or divorce or all these different areas of life. In every case, he's applying these key principles 
The first one is that there are two worlds colliding. We saw that last Sunday. Today, Jesus is the key to navigating that. We'll talk about how, what that means, and what it looks like. Our key question that's kind of driving this whole series we're going to come back to uh, every Sunday is simply this. His world, God's world, is invading our world. So how does that shape my world? That's what we're really after, and we're going to see that even this morning. Because we find that the principles and the values of God's world and this world are so foreign to our sinful hearts, they're at such odds that there's no way we can actually measure up to them. No matter how serious a Christian I am, no matter how much I love God or want to do the right thing, when I really start getting my head around the values of God's kingdom, I don't measure up. I can't. And so I have to do something with that. Especially when I realize that measure up is exactly what God expects me to do. That's what he expects of everybody. So in response, again, you know, we, we can tend to do one of two things. I think it's largely based on whether you tend to be more of a rule follower type person or a rule, um, shall we just say, a rule relaxer, you know? All of us probably experience this at some level or not. You know, there's those that, like, if you tell me what I'm supposed to do, I cling to every word. So I want to know whether it's, like, you know, my, my teacher at school or my boss at work or whatever. Like, show me what it means to be a good, you know, student or a good employee or a good mom or a good dad or whatever it is. Show me what they are, and I'm going to, like, that will be my, my study. I will, <laughs> I will meticulously follow every rule because I see rules as the way to success. That's one kind of person. Give me the rules, I want to follow them. Another kind of person kind of has a tendency to say, yeah, rules, we all know what those are meant for, right? (laughs) They're meant to be explored. Guidelines. We know which one Kurt Free is. You also know why Kurt is no longer an elder in this church. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. His term just expired, and he didn't, so he just stepped off the board. So, um, but yeah, I mean, what is a rule, really, right? It's a guideline. It's, it's something to be worked around. It's something to, you know, whatever, just kind of deal with it. I mean, a lot of this is just sort of personality and experience, but, but that can really affect the way we respond to God and his rules, right? When, when you hear Jesus talking this way, one response is to simply just get crushed under the weight of that impossible standard of perfection, And so what that produces is a Christian who lives in just sort of this constant state of awareness that we're failures. Like I regularly, even when I'm not consciously thinking about it, it's just sort of like my mental furniture. I think of myself as a second-class Christian because I have this sin in my life or in my past. Maybe it's a pornography addiction. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's whatever it is. But I just realize I'm not measuring up. And so I think of myself as lesser than everybody else around me. So I just get crushed under the weight of it. The opposite way to respond is to try to sort of minimize, or sorry, minimize um, the, uh, my sinfulness by sort of rationalizing my behavior, generalizing it, dare I say, guidelining it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but God loves me anyway, thank God, so don't spend too much time getting hung up on the little stuff, right? It's not that important. Well, it is true that I'm not perfect, and it is true that God loves me anyway, but is that how a Christian is supposed to think? Just kind of minimize the small stuff, don't worry about it too much. You know, we kind of minimize it. Or, or even more so, maybe we try to tame God's um, standards. We try to put a leash on it through creating a set of religious rules of our own. This is what drives religious legalism. You know, people that are always like, you have to follow every rule. What we're really trying to do there is we're trying to say like, I probably can't meet God's perfect standard, but we can create in a church kind of a smaller standard. You know, if you just like, don't kill anybody, that's a good start. And, you know, maybe read your Bible uh, on your own and like go to church maybe more often than not. I don't know that every Sunday is really that important, but you know, I mean, like make it a priority, whatever. We come up with this list of things and it's like, well, I could do that. I mean, I probably can't do perfection, but I can do that. And so we cling to that standard and we become rigid legalists because at least it helps us feel like I'm succeeding somewhere. So we're we're kind of trying to put a leash on God's perfect standard. We're trying to take the mountain of responsibility and cram it into a backpack small enough that I could carry that. So we want to kind of move the goalposts. Well, the Sermon on the Mount in general, and this passage in particular, Jesus is having none of either (laughs) response. He presents himself as the key to a third way, a a totally new and different way to respond um, to the crushing weight of God's standards. 
We've got two simple points today. Actually, it's really one point. There's, there's a, a core theological truth that we're going to look at, and then we're going to talk about how that shapes the life of a Christian if we're actually living it out. That's, that's really where we're headed this morning. And I call the, the theological truth a core theological truth because what Jesus addresses in this passage that we just read is it's one of these big picture kind of foundational building blocks of the entire Christian faith. If you, if you understand what Jesus is saying here, you will understand so much of how the Bible is put together and so much of what God is calling us to. So this is an important truth with a life-changing impact, and we want to talk about both. First of all, the core theological truth. What is so important that poor, um, uh, gives us the key to navigating this collision of worlds? He deals with it in verse 17 when he says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them to fulfill them. Now quickly, just the, the, the phrase the law and the prophets, that was kind of first century Jewish lingo. It was a way of referring to the, what, what we call the Old Testament, okay? The whole thing. The law, the prophets, and the writings are the three classic divisions of the Old Testament. So sometimes they would just refer to the law or the law and the prophets in shorthand. That, it meant the whole Old Testament. God's revealed word. All those rules, all those standards, all those principles taught in the Bible. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish or wipe out the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. What does he mean by that? To fulfill it simply means to, to bring about its intended purpose. Um, God wrote the Old Testament and gave it to humanity for a reason. That makes sense. Um, it wasn't haphazard. I mean, like he had, a, he had a purpose, he had a plan in doing that. But apparently, Jesus is saying, the Old Testament by itself, the written words, were not sufficient to accomplish that purpose. I have come to accomplish the purpose for which the Old Testament was written. And that purpose is pretty simple. All the teachings, all the rules, all the promises in the Old Testament were meant to show God's people how to live lives that are fully devoted to him. That was, its, that was its aim. That was its purpose. It was all meant to show God's people how to live lives that are fully devoted to him. But as you read the Old Testament, it's also replete with all kinds of stories and historical examples of how God's people repeatedly failed to live up to that standard. In other words, the Old Testament both gives us the standard of perfection and shows us that we don't have the ability to meet the standard. That's all part of the message of the Old Testament. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, just a few chapters after the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, the prophets and the law, again, the Old Testament, prophesied until John the Baptist came. What he's saying there is that, actually, the Old Testament, like even the law, when you go back and you read Leviticus, anybody ever done that? Like the whole thing? Some of you are like, yeah, it was painful. Yeah, it is kind of painful. It's, it's meticulous, it's dry, there's all these religious rules and regulations, all this detailed minutia, and you're like, really? And what Jesus is saying is that those things weren't just like rules unto themselves. They weren't ends in themselves. What they were really doing is they were pointing ahead. They were prophesying in the language of the Bible. Even the rules God gave us, Jesus says, were prophesying. They were pointing ahead to the future to somebody who would come and do what these rules were trying to do but never could do, and that is make sinners completely holy people. So the Old Testament was pointing to me. So Jesus comes to fulfill the Old Testament, that is to bring about its purpose of creating a holy people, and he does it by being true Israel. This is right at the heart of one of these key themes in the entire Bible. He is the true and greater Israel, the, the Old Testament people of God. That is, he, he, he takes the place of the Old Testament people of God and he succeeds where they failed. He brings about the perfection that the Old Testament law demanded and he does it in the place of God's people. So much of the Bible is designed to teach us this um, let me just refer to a couple things in Matthew by way of context, because again, the Sermon on the Mount is only a piece of the Gospel of Matthew, and we don't want to understand its context. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus doesn't make his first public statement of ministry until halfway through chapter 4. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and the first half of chapter 4 are all kind of designed to show this very point. Before Jesus begins to 
talk, before Matthew tells us what he said and what he did, he, he goes out of his way to show us kind of who he is as true Israel. Uh, just a couple of quick examples in Matthew chapter 2. In fact, let me just show you this briefly. Flip a page or so to your left if you're in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be back there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus is um, a young child, an infant at this point. And uh, Matthew records this, verse 13. Now when they, that is Mary and Joseph, had departed, behold, um, an angel... um, Sorry, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child, Jesus, and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy them. Sorry, it was the wise men that had departed there. Uh, And he rose and he took Jesus and his mother at night and departed to Egypt. Now, so far, this just sounds like um, interesting historical narrative. Okay, Mary and Joseph had to move to Egypt for a little while when Jesus was a baby, and then they came back. Yeah, that's what happened. But look what Matthew does with this. This is why he's telling us this. Verse 15. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. And now he's quoting from the Old Testament. I will call my son. Now, what he's quoting there is from uh, a verse from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. If you go back to Hosea 11, I'll just read this quickly. Don't turn there. Hosea 11, chapter 1. God is speaking of the ancient Israelites. And he says, when Israel was a child... So he's now sort of metaphorically depicting the whole nation as a person and saying when they were young, when they were infants, when they were trapped in Egypt, in other words, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. You know, the plagues in the Red Sea. I saved them from the Egyptians. And how did they respond to that love? God goes on, he says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So Hosea's prophecy is about the people of God pictured as a single son whom God loved, and yet that son was faithless. God took him out of Egypt, but that son was faithless. And Matthew is helping us understand that Jesus is the true son of God, the true Israel, also called out of Egypt, but is he going to be faithful or not? Will he be faithless too? That takes us into Matthew chapter 4. The well-known story of Jesus' 40-day wilderness temptation and fasting before his public ministry. Uh, All all I'm going to say about this passage is just this. That 40-day time of, of lack of regular food out in kind of the desolate places directly mirrors the Israelites' 40-year wandering out in the desolate places with no regular sources of food, where they were totally dependent on God to take care of them. God saves them out of Egypt. He brings them to a desolate place, and he says, I'm going to care for you. Will you trust me? And of course, if you've read the Old Testament, you know the answer. The answer was, no, they didn't trust him. They rebelled against him. They said, there's no water out here. There's no food out here. God just brought us out here to kill us. And God's like, I just saved your life. How could you possibly think I was brought out here to kill you? And so their their hunger and their thirst led them to call God's uh, character into question. They're like, God doesn't love us. And so now Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, mirroring the 40 years, and he is hungry, and Satan comes along and he says, hey, turn these stones to bread. You could instantly gratify your legitimate hunger. And Jesus' response is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I will not call the Father into question. I will obey him. Jesus succeeds where they fail. Do you see, see what's happening? But the point of all this, we're back in Matthew 5, is that Matthew's helping us see Jesus as the true and greater Israel. When it says he, he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets, here's what that means in very simple terms. He's saying that he is going to transform the life of a Christian completely in a way that the rules alone never could. And he does it by being true Israel, or we might say being the true and greater Christian for us, and then by giving us a new heart. And before we get to that last statement, he's got one more clarification. He will not do it by relaxing the standard or changing the rules. He does it by meeting the standard in our place. He says, I will not relax the standard at all, verses 18 and 19. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, that was the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet that the law was written on, not the smallest tiny bit or letter of God's rules will pass away. 
Whoever relaxes even one of the least of these commandments, whoever tells people, I know God, God said, you know, obey me 100%, but if you're doing 80%, hey, that's pretty good. God's okay with that. You just relaxed the standard. 80% obedience is not obedience. Every time we're tempted to hem or haw or fudge even a little bit on what God's expectations of perfection are, Jesus says that person will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. The rules and the standards will not change. By saying this, Jesus is affirming that the entire Bible has one unified message. There's not one message of the Old Testament and a different message of the New Testament. There's not one God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New Testament. The whole thing was pointing to our need for a Savior who will transform our hearts so that we love and obey and reflect God. But the rules alone couldn't do it. They were pointing to the Savior. Jesus is that Savior. And he does it not by abolishing. He's going to change us. Not by abolishing the rules. Not by lowering the rules down to a standard that we can achieve, but by actually raising us up, meeting that standard in our place, and then transforming our hearts so that we are able to love God from the core of our being. Now let's talk about what that means. That's a very quick flyover of one of the most important truths at the core of the Christian faith. Jesus creates the holy, passionate, God-devoted people that rules alone could never create. And he doesn't do it by relaxing or getting rid of the rules. He does it by being true Israel, by being the righteous person for us, and then by changing us from deep within. What difference does that make? How does that look? What does that mean in terms of how that shapes my world? That's the right question. That's the right question. That leads us to part two this morning. What does that mean? Jesus actually springboards into that with our last verse this morning, verse 20. Maybe the most shocking verse of all in its context in the first century. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, many of you are familiar enough with the Bible that you already understand how steep a a cliff he just threw up in front of us, right? How shocking a statement that is. The the scribes and Pharisees were a, a sect. They were a religious group. They were the religious leaders. Like, think of the most you know, the most holy person you know, or the most devoted religious man you know, you know, some guru or swami up on a a, a hilltop in India or someplace like that. Or some people think of the Pope, right? Maybe the most uh, globally um, common picture of, of, of of a Christian church leader. Everybody just assumes that such people are kind of otherworldly. They're, they're doing way better than the average person. They're extending themselves much further into uh, what it means to follow God or the things of God than a regular person does. That's kind of what the Pharisees were like in the first century Jewish context. They had devoted their entire lives. They had gone all in to being the best God rule followers they could be. They were the religious superstars of the day. Everyone looked up to them because they knew God's rules better than anybody else because they studied them. And they committed themselves to carrying out God's rules with much more meticulous detail than anybody else. So everybody looked at them and said, well, those guys are over the top. And you know what's interesting? This is just a quick aside. Jesus has a lot to say about the Pharisees in the New Testament. Many of you are familiar with the Gospels, and you know that almost everything Jesus has to say about the Pharisees, is it good or is it bad? It's very bad. (laughs) Uh, Not a fan. Pretty safe to say. Jesus is not a fan of the Pharisees. He takes them to task for all sorts of things. He takes them to task for their abuse of power. He takes them to task for their um, uh, false religion. He takes them to task for uh, twisting and perverting the teachings of God's word for the people. He says, almost everything is wrong with you guys, but you know what? Here's one thing. The one thing Jesus never calls into question for the Pharisees, one thing he never calls them out on is their effort. He never calls them out on their effort. He never says, oh, you guys act like you're trying really hard, but you're really just lazy and you're not doing anything. That's not true. They weren't lazy. They were getting after it. They were working as hard as they could work to keep all of God's rules as they had come to understand them. And and Jesus essentially kind of says, you know, that's right. They are sort of the pinnacle of human religion, of human religious effort. And then he says, but even they 
aren't doing well enough to even barely make it into the bottommost rung of heaven's ladder. They're not even going to make it in. Now, in that context, that's a shocking statement. If they're not going to make it in, what hope do any of the rest of us have? Because we don't know God's rules the way they do, and we don't follow them as hard as they do, even if we try to be good people. If they're not good enough, what are you saying? We're hopeless. It's a deliberately uh, provocative and shocking statement on Jesus' part. The reason he deliberately shocks his audience is that he's about to proclaim a totally different way to live for God than what our natural human bents are. Our natural human bents either toward rule relaxing or rule following. He says there's a totally different way to follow God. And it's not somewhere in the middle. It's like a completely different road to get on. But the problem is, he knows that we're going to interpret everything that he says through our kind of built-in filters. You know, it's like, it's like when you wear amber-colored sunglasses or something, and you look up at the sky, and it's all green, because you just put on these yellowish lenses. And then, like, you know, 10 minutes later, the sky looks blue, right? And you run around all day long, you know, you're driving or you're out hiking or whatever, and you got these glasses on the whole time. And like after a while, maybe you've had this experience, like I'll be wearing sunglasses and I forget that they're even on my face. You know, you're just living life and doing your thing and looking at all the pretty sights. And then at one point you take off the glasses and look up in the sky and you're like, whoa, that thing is blue. (laughs) I mean, like really blue. I thought I was looking at a blue sky, but I had this filter on and I kind of even forgot it was there. That's a lot like what our rule-following or our rule-relaxing tendencies can be. We have this bent, sometimes we're not even aware of it, but it affects and filters everything Jesus says. And he's like, i got to shock you out of your filter. i got to help you realize you've got glasses on and take them off so that you can hear what I'm saying clearly and accurately. You see, a rule-follower tends to reinterpret the gospel a little bit. It might go something like this. I'm glad Jesus forgives me, and that's all grace. I believe that. I understand it. I'm a Christian. I've banked my life on it. Jesus forgives me, but I refuse to forgive myself. That's a rule follower interpreting the gospel through the grid of performance standard. I refuse to forgive myself. Uh, in fact, maybe in a way, I know that I, I fail to measure up to God's standard, and so I deserve punishment. And because God won't give it to me, that almost makes me feel more like I deserve punishment. So thank God he won't punish me, but I'm going to punish myself, right? I'm like, you know, one of Harry Potter's house elves. You know, I did something wrong. Grab the lamp. Whack, whack, whack. Beat myself over that. Sorry, that's for you Harry Potter fans. <laughs> if you never had Harry Potter, just forget the house elf thing. The point is, like... It's like I've got to just beat myself because God won't do it, so I need to do it. A rule relaxer reinterprets the gospel too in a very different way. Might look something like this. Hey, look, my entire life is not, and by the way, I'm speaking as somebody who tends to be a rule relaxer. (laughs) I'm another one of those guideliners. Um, I know my life is not um, 100% one great obsession with the glory of Christ. It's not what it should be. But you know, um, I do better than average. (laughs) I mean, maybe I don't divorce. Or maybe um, I don't have an alcohol problem. Or maybe um, I read my Bible. I mean, maybe not every day. But at least I do have a habit of doing it most days. And that's more than a lot of Christians can say. So yes, I need to get better. But at the end of the day, you know, It's really not that big a deal. And Jesus comes along and says, "Um, yes, it is. Yeah, it's, it's that big a deal. God doesn't grade on a curve. Take off the glasses and see the truth of God's holiness and the glory of the gospel clearly and in an unfiltered way. So he shocks them into taking off their glasses by saying your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Practically, what does that mean? It means that we have to be better than them in two ways. We have to obey God both wider and deeper. And in both cases, the role of Jesus as our Savior completely changes the game. Let's talk about what that might look like. 
By obeying God wider, what we mean is we have to obey all the rules, um, all the time. Not some of them some of the time, and not even most of them most of the time. But actually, all of the rules all of the time. When he said in that context, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, part of what he meant was just the sheer number of God's rules that a person is obeying. And it's true that the scribes and the Pharisees, these were people that obeyed far more of God's rules than most people did, but even they weren't doing it 24-7, 365 for their entire life because they were human. They weren't perfect. So no matter how hard they tried, there were still some of God's rules that were outside of the boundaries of their lives. They weren't obeying perfectly. And he says, nope, your righteousness has to exceed it. All of God's rules, the big ones and the little ones, they're all holy, holiness, they all matter. Now that's a shocking statement. But Jesus frees us to face the impossibility of that standard by being true Israel or the true Christian, the true people of God. In other words, he meets that impossible standard for us in our place. That's a big part of what it means to say that he is the true and greater Israel. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, the Bible says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. There's Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 saying, I'm not going to abolish any piece of the law. And then here's the Bible in Romans saying that Jesus is the end of the law. So which is it? Is that a contradiction? No because that's not all Romans says. It doesn't actually say Jesus is the end of the law. It says he's the end of the law for righteousness. That means Jesus, uh, sorry, obeying the rules is no longer the way I have to get right with God, being a perfect person, because I can't attain that standard. Christ comes along, Jesus comes along, and he meets it for me, and that puts an end to my efforts to need to punish myself or justify myself through my performance because he's done it for me. There's a whole third way. It's a totally different road. There's a whole new way to get right with God. And what this means practically is that, on the one hand, I don't have to check out of passages like this. I don't have to check out of it. When I, when I hear the, the weight of this, and, and I'm one of these rule relaxers, and I'm like, I don't like all of that like guilt, you know, religion stuff, and man, it drives me crazy, and can we like just go read the Psalms or whatever? I, I don't actually have to worry about it because Christ has met the standard for me which sort of like frees me to call a spade a spade. To call God's standard what it is. It's perfection. And I no longer have this desperate inner need to pull that standard down closer to something I can meet because I know I don't meet it and I know Christ has met it for me. So the pressure's off. And if I really believe and bank on the gospel, it will change the way that I even look at a passage like this where I can actually be happy. I can rejoice and be glad when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And I know I don't measure up because he's measured up for me. You see, it takes off my rule relaxing glasses and lets me see God's law for what it really is. Absolute, perfect holiness. But you know, it also means that I don't need to feel the weight of guilt and shame when I fall short of meeting that standard for the same reason, because Jesus has measured up in my place. It means that I'm free to admit my guilt, to confess my sin before God, to acknowledge that I do not keep his standard. It's perfect, it's way beyond me and then to revel in the freedom of forgiveness. And it's that last statement that we as rule followers struggle so much with, is it not? <laughs> Can I actually revel in the freedom of forgiveness? Or is the guilt and the shame still bearing me down and making me just beat myself into the dirt? Earlier, we alluded to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. That is, you're, you're sort of beat down under the weight of trying to carry out all these religious rules. He says, if that's you, come to me, and you will find rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. That word yoke is, is like a harness. Um, it was a harness. It would uh, lash two big, strong oxen together so that they could pull either a heavy wagon or, or pull a plow through rough dirt to plow it and get it ready for planting. So you've got these two just huge, strong animals pulling this really, really strong weight. And so they would build a harness 
to lash the animals together and to attach it to the weight. And that harness obviously had to be a very heavy-duty piece of equipment. They would make them typically out of wood, but there were these great, big, thick uh, timbers. They weighed just a ton. I mean, for a person, they were incredibly, way too heavy to, to, to put on your own shoulders. I mean, it would just buckle your knees and you would fall under it, much less actually have the strength to lift the harness and pull the plow through the dirt too. A human being could never do that. It was designed for these big, strong oxen. And Jesus is seizing on that as an image. And he's saying, do you know why my yoke or my harness is light? Well, he just clarified it for us in Matthew chapter 5. It's not because I've lowered the standards. It's not because I said, oh, there's no way you could carry that one. That thing was built for an ox. Let me give you a human-sized harness that you can pull. I'll just give you a little backpack. It's got some weight in it, but you can handle that. So why don't you run off and do your best? As long as you do pretty well, we'll call it good. That's not what he means when he says my yoke is light. He said not one letter of the law is going to change. I didn't come to abolish it. Actually, what he says is, you know what? You put this massive heavy thing that's way too big for you to carry. All of God's rules, all of God's perfection, and it just crushes your shoulders and your knees are buckling and you haven't budged the plow an inch because you can barely even get to your own feet. And guess what? It was made for two though. And so the other one that comes alongside is not another person. It's a big ox. It's Jesus himself. And he says, I'm stronger than you. And so he comes under it and he lifts the weight for us, lashed together to us and to the plow, but he lifts the weight for us. In fact, he takes all of the weight of the thing on his own shoulders and he starts pulling forward. And we're like, hey, I'm along for the ride. Tiptoe. I'm not carrying any of the weight of all of this thing. Why? Because it isn't heavy? No, it's every bit as heavy as it was before. But because Jesus Christ has lifted the weight of perfection off of my shoulders as my true Israel. If you find yourself as a rule follower who has a very difficult time forgiving yourself, that might be a good place to dwell for a while. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Like, set aside some time and just dwell there. Ponder it. Read it and reread it and re-re-re-read it over and over and over again. Find music, find songs that, that, that resonate with your soul that have that same theme and sing them and pray to God. And like, some of us probably need to just have a little bit of a Jacob moment with Jesus, you know, where Jacob is in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is there and he's wrestling with him and he's like, I won't let go until you bless me, even though his hip's already out of whack. Just sit there desperately in prayer and say, God, I'm not going to let this go until I start to feel the weight of my own anger at myself dissipate in the face of your truth. Until I feel the weight of guilt dissipate in the face of your truth. Until I feel that weight lifted. And you might be there for a couple hours and it's not gone. That's fine. Go on with your day and then get back the next day. Do it again. And do it again. And do it again. Because this is the truth of the gospel and pray that God would lift the weight. That's what it means that he bore the weight for us. We need to obey wider than the Pharisees. That means all of the rules. But he also meant we need to obey deeper. To exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees means to obey deeper. And by that we mean from the heart. From the heart, not just the superficial behavior. You see, it's not just that the Pharisees tried really hard and obeyed more than rules than anybody else, but there were still some that they didn't get. <laughs> That's true, and we just talked about that. But it's not like the rules that they were obeying, they were fine, it's just that they missed some. Actually, the, the situation is much worse than that. Even the rules they were obeying on the surface, Jesus takes major issue with it because they weren't obeying from a heart that loved God and his holiness. They were obeying from a heart that was all about them. They wanted the status that obeying the rules conferred upon them in their community, in their day. They wanted to feel like winners because they were outperforming other people. It was ultimately about them and how they could accrue wealth and fame and influence to themselves by being holy, righteous, religious people in a religious community. He says your motives are totally opposite of God and his glory. So even your obedience stinks to God. It's like rotten garbage because it's just superficial. It's just behavior, but it's not coming from a place of loving God's glory. 
He tells them whether you obey or whether you disobey, you are coming from a place of loving yourself, not God. And so to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees means it penetrates all the way down to the heart. My obedience to God comes from a place of loving him deeply and passionately. I'm seeing his infinite worth as ultimately beautiful, the most beautiful thing, and so I yearn for it, and that's what produces my obedience. It comes from within. So much of the Sermon on the Mount is about this very point. We're going we're to run into it over and over and over and over and over again, that behavior and, and obedience to God is not a surface thing. It's to come from the heart. It's an issue of motives. That's one of the main themes that Jesus is dealing with because that's what it means to have a righteousness exceed that of the, of the Pharisees. How does that work? <laughs> How does that look? Jesus is true Israel in that he took Israel's place, he keeps the law for us, or we could say Jesus is the true and greater Christian, and there's great freedom in that because he um, fulfills for me the, the requirements of the law I can never fulfill for myself. But he also gives me a new heart. Like, he meets the standard for me. That's kind of outside of me. That's external to me. But he also does something internal inside me. He gives me a heart that actually wants to obey God for the sake of God himself, that treasures and loves and values God more than anything else that I treasure or love or value. I think about why I obey God personally when I do when I actually live the way he does want me to, which sadly is not all of the time, but it does happen occasionally, (laughs) even in my best moments as a Christian, why am I obeying God? Is it motivated out of guilt? (laughs) I failed in so many other places and God's forgiven me so I need to do all I can to pay him back? You know, pay him back? It's not a guilt thing. Is it out of um, just kind of habit and duty? That's what it is for me a lot of times cultivating good habits. I read my Bible. I go to church. I connect with church people. I, I do things for God that are good and right, and I should keep doing them, but it's just kind of part, of part of my life now, which is good, but sometimes it can just become this rote thing that my heart disengages with it, and I'm just kind of going through motions. Is it appearances? Like the Pharisees? <laughs> I want to be seen by people in my church to be obeying God, and so I'm going to obey him so that I'm seen that way? You know, do I read my Bible just because every Sunday night, I know Gavin's going to ask all the guys, how many times did you read the Bible this week? Which is awesome, I love that. And I don't want to say, ooh, less than last week, because then I'll feel foolish. And so I'm going to read the Bible so that I can have a good report Sunday night. And the guys will see me as like a good Christian. Or say, There's so many like motives that get all mixed up and weird. I had a really interesting wrestle with this personally this past week. Um, it was a challenging week for me. Ministry weeks are like that sometimes. I mean, everybody has those, no matter what your job is. Ministry's no exception. Um, a lot of irons in the fire. A lot of things for me to be thinking about, demanding my attention. And, and, and God's grace, you know, he showed up and things went fine. But I certainly had a lot to think about. Not least of which was preparing for this morning, like I do most weeks, and getting ready to teach God's word. Um, I saw the points that the Bible was making. I've known these truths for a while. I love them. I've, I've studied them. I've taught them before. I care about them. So it was not difficult for me to see the key theological points that the Bible was making in this passage. But I got to admit, I struggled more than I normally do. Some weeks are just like this. I'll be honest, this was one of them. With like, okay, but how, do those, how does that Bible study translate to Sunday morning sermon? Those are two different things. The sermon comes from the Bible study, but it's not just the Bible study. Um, like, where do we need to go with this, God? How does this get presented in a way that's helpful and effective for your people? And I was running into brick wall after brick wall. It was very frustrating. Um, got to the end of the week and still had a pretty good Bible study. <laughs> I don't think I had a very good sermon. So, I've been doing this long enough. I kind of know what to do. Um, I pray, both before I start sermon prep, during, and after. So I'm praying again. I'm like, God, I need a sermon. Sunday's coming. And <laughs> um, this has got to come from you. And I always trust that at some point, God will... Um, open the floodgates and show me where to go. But I also um, talked to some people 
I've got a number of uh, people in my life who are sermon prep conversation partners, <laughs> for lack of a better term. You know, like I'm, I'm studying God's word and I'll just throw it out. Sometimes we do this in our ministry staff meetings and we just interact with it as, as ministry staff leaders. And I just hear other people's perspectives and that helps me think about how, a, uh, you know, the implications of a biblical truth or the applications of it or some things I hadn't thought about before. It's very helpful in sermon prep, but my number one sermon conversation partner for sure is my wife, Amy. And so I'm talking to her. And I'm like, so here's the deal. Here's the thing. Here's the Bible study. And here's where I'm stuck. And she's like, well, I don't know what I have for you. Just here's what occurs to me. And she asked a question. I'll paraphrase it. It's basically, how are you personally experiencing these truths? Jesus is true Israel. How is that changing your life right now? It's essentially what we talked about. I kind of went, I thought about that a lot. I've been excited about these truths before. This week, I don't know. I've kind of had a lot to do, <laughs> including getting ready to talk about these truths and how they should impact all of you, but not me. Whoa, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> and I started really thinking about that. Anyway, that's Friday. So Saturday, yesterday morning, um, I realized I, I had a lot of stuff that I was going to do Saturday. Um, I was looking for, I had done, you know, errands and yard work and stuff. And then I was just really looking forward to some downtime because it had been an intense week and whew, I was ready to just kind of crash. And so I was going to get up and kind of do my normal daily Bible reading and, and spend a little bit of time in prayer and just kind of move on like I do most days. I thought, you know what? All right, I've got the time here. Maybe I really need to think a lot harder. So this is just kind of how it worked for me this week. Um, it's not the only way to do this. I just... I kind of want to illustrate like, what a difference this can make. Basically, I went back to this passage uh, out on my deck Saturday morning. I thought, okay, Jesus is true Israel. Why do I care about that? What does that mean? How does that impact me? I met, ended up back in Matthew 4, 4. Turn these stones to bread. Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father. The yearning to be in the presence of God and to hang on his every word was enough for him. And I'm sitting there going, is that enough for me right now? No, <laughs> I was ready to do my Bible reading and then move on with what my heart really wanted, which was just to chill, because I was tired. It took me back to Psalm 19, which says that, that God, your precepts, your, your truths are, are completely right, and they delight the heart. I pondered that for a while. Are the truths of God that I've just studied a source of delight for my heart right now? My heart was saying, I want downtime. I don't want the shoes of God. I started just thinking more and more about what it meant that Jesus is in my place, that all of this failure in my own life that I'm experiencing was done and taken care of by my true Israel. How Jesus is making me a passionate God pursuer by obeying in my place and giving me a new heart. I just wrote some things out and spent some time praying, God, help me be what I aspire to be. Give me the kind of heart that will see your infinite worth as ultimately beautiful, not an afternoon where I can chill as the most beautiful thing in my life right now. And I still got to chill yesterday afternoon. It was fine. It was good. But it reframed my day. That's not something we necessarily do. Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 says, God has sent his, the spirit of his son, Jesus Christ, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. You see what he's saying? Part of Jesus' work was not only to meet the standard for us, but part of what he does is true Israel is he gives us a heart to obey God from the heart. He will actually transform our selfish, me-oriented heart into a God-oriented one. He puts his own spirit into our spirit so that we reflect him and we love and yearn for. That's what Abba Father means. It's Daddy, it's Father, it's God, I want you. I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence more than anything else. That is what drives a righteous life. And the key point is that is the work of Jesus. That is a work of the Holy Spirit of God in you and in me as Christians, making us want to obey him even more than we do because we love him and then giving us the power to do it more than we have on our own. That's another great place to dwell in prayer, by the way. Maybe if you're a rule follower, you need to dwell in my burden is light until you feel the burden lift. But you know what? If you're kind of a rule relaxer and you're like, yeah, I can do my God thing and whatever, sort of like me, but sometimes I'm just not loving God as much as I want to, maybe that's a great place to dwell in prayer. 
Galatians 4, 6. Are you putting your spirit into my heart and hold on to God until your affections begin to change? Read and reread, memorize scripture, sing songs that reflect it, talk to people about it, let that truth just wash over you, hold on to it until you actually feel, and then pray like crazy, God, change my heart so that it reflects the truth of this, until you actually experientially feel yourself changing and your heart begins to see his infinite worth as ultimately beautiful. Jesus Here's where all this is going. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not by abolishing it, but by keeping it for us and giving us a new heart. That's a truth that we're gonna see applied over and over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount to all these different very practical areas of life, but they're all gonna come back to the same essential truth. In shorthand, Jesus is the true and greater Israel. We sang the song earlier, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, my favorite line in that song is reflected on this theological truth. See the true and better Adam, the first man, the human being, come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. That is what enables us as Christians to live in the messy collision of worlds. When God's world invades our world and I aspire to be one of God's people but I can tell I don't measure up, Christ himself is the key. Jesus fulfilling the law means the freedom to agree with all of it rather than minimizing it, the freedom from the guilt of failing to live up to it, and the freedom to start seeing the infinite worth of Christ as ultimately beautiful. As a church, could you join me in praying that this would be a more of an experiential reality for you and I this week than it was even last week? As we come to the communion table now, it's our custom at the second Sunday of every month to receive communion as the ushers prepare to distribute the communion elements. We have an act of worship that our Savior has told us to engage in. All Christians, he says, um, receive the Lord's Supper, receive communion as a way of uh, recognizing the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. Once again, this is the kind of thing we can do out of appearances, because we don't want anybody to look at us funny. We can do it out of just habit. This is kind of what we do. Or we can do it out of a heart that pines and yearns for the closeness of God within us. Friends, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, can I urge you to do it out of the latter? To recognize that by eating this bread and drinking this cup, these simple symbolic actions, what we are symbolizing, what we are saying, the Bible says, is we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That means if you're here with us this morning and you've not committed your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd encourage you to just let the communion elements pass by without partaking of them. That's totally fine. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's watching anyway. But when we eat and drink this cup and we eat this bread, what we are saying is Jesus Christ has died. He's my true Israel. He's died for me to make a way for me to be what he's meant me to be, and I'm relying on him. As the ushers come forward to distribute the elements, uh, I'm gonna pray for us in just a moment. They'll distribute um, the first of the elements, the bread, and I'll ask us all to hold on to it until everyone has received it. Then we'll all partake it together. We're gonna have a few moments where the band is just playing quietly, there's just quiet music in the background. I wanna encourage you to reflect, maybe to pray. However the truths of this passage have impacted you, pray that we would experience Christ as the key to living in this messy collision of worlds. And then we'll come to the communion table. Let me pray for us. The ushers will start handing out the elements. We'll have a few moments of silence. Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you that you have come to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. And I pray that that reality would not just be what we believe, believe, but what we as your people and members of this church actively hold on to experientially. And even now as we receive these reminders of your sacrifice for us on the cross, we pray that you would knit our hearts more closely to you. And for those who are far away, for those who are still trying to figure out who you are and what they believe about you, I pray that you would meet them in your grace right now as well. And so we give ourselves to you. In Christ's name, amen.